Thanks for pressing play. You said you like different, right? Well, this one's very different for a business podcast or podcast, as we are often lovingly referred to around here. If you love the serendipitous magic that can only occur from a real, authentic dialogue, then you're in the right place. This is Christopher Lockett, Fall Your Different, and we are the real conversation oddcast for business leaders and category designers with a different mind. On this episode, women's health, it's a topic everyone cares about. And sexual health is an important part of living a legendary life. But it can also be a tough topic for both women and men to address. Women's sexual health can seem scary and uncomfortable. And it's a topic that doesn't get discussed enough broadly. Today, the legendary Dr. Christy Pramuji. Dr. Christy is a fascinating doctor because she followed her different to become one of the very few gynecologists, urologists, and she primarily focuses on, no surprise, the needs of women. Dr. Christy is considered to be a true pioneer in pelvic health and regeneration. She's based in beautiful Houston, Texas, where she's helped thousands of women heal and get fulfilling sex lives. Like all powerful dialogues, this one operates on multiple levels. First, you're about to hear from a missionary category designing doctor. And second, by the end of this episode, you'll gain real insights into why Dr. Christie says orgasm is a right, how the female orgasm works, what it takes for women to have them, and what you can do if you or a woman you love is having challenges with orgasm. She teaches, if it doesn't feel good, it's not right. And she presents a holistic approach, including some new recent medical interventions that help women have breakthroughs in their sexual health. And pay special attention to what Dr. Christie calls the pyramid of intimacy. If you're a woman or you love a woman, you're going to love Dr. Christy Pramuji. Now, readers like you have made Category Pirate's latest book, Snow Leopard, how legendary writers create a category of one, a number one bestseller in marketing. And I find it very interesting that a number one bestseller in marketing is about writing. You see, Snow Leopard is the first ever writing book written through a category design lens. Inside, you'll discover not just a bunch of nose-picky suggestions for how you can do writing better. No. Instead, you will internalize a completely new way of framing your ideas, stories, and insights to reach and resonate the most people possible. In Snow Leopard, we did the largest category science research project ever done on modern nonfiction books, essentially to figure out why certain books sell and why others fail. And when you analyze that with nonfiction books, what you're really studying is which ideas succeed and which ideas fail. If you want to be a legendary writer or you want to be somebody who moves the world in a new and different direction, check out Snow Leopard by Category Pirates on Amazon today. Now, hey-ho, let's go. Well, Dr. Christie, it sure is wonderful to see you. Good to see you, too. Now, I have a thousand questions for you, but I'm curious, is there a particular spot that you would like to start? Um, I'm open to wherever you want to start. Okay. 
So um, maybe start here. Uh, you have an engineering undergraduate degree, is that correct? I do, yes. And so uh, would it be fair to characterize you as an engineer turned lady doctor? Um, I think that would be a fair characterization, yeah. I, I had always wanted to be a doctor um, and ended up at Georgia Tech, so studied engineering as a fallback plan, but then just continued to pursue my dream to be a doctor. Fascinating. And how would you or would you at all connect uh, engineering to uh, being a doctor? Well, um, in my field of urology, um, we deal with a lot of uh, fluid mechanics and filtration systems. So very similar to chemical engineering. I would say that the brain has to work very differently from being an engineer to being a physician. Being an engineer you have to really focus in and dive deep into a problem. Um, and being a physician, you, you do that as well, but you have to also kind of have a broader view of the patient, the relationship, the psychological and social issues going on. Um, and that suits me a lot better. I'm much better doctor than engineer. <laughs> <laughs> well, fascinating. It's a, it's a very interesting path that you've been on. Now, another thing, of course, that makes you incredibly unique is your urologist who focuses, uh, if I've done my homework correctly, 100% on uh, women. Is that still correct, uh, Dr. Christie? That's pretty much correct. Um, I do occasional vasectomies um, and hormones for men, low T type things, but um, and some erectile dysfunction. But for the most part, 99.5% of my practice is female. And I've been doing that for the past 10 years, like really specialized. And so uh, from a business perspective, what made you want to niche down on women's urology? Because I'm no expert in your field, but it doesn't seem like there are that many of you in the country that are primarily or if not solely focused on uh, on ladies. Yeah. So um, it sort of happened organically. I kind of realized there was a need. So when I went into private practice. I was in a group. Um, I was the only woman in a group of uh, men, six men, and it grew to 12. I was still the only woman. And I was very frustrated because being trained in urology, we trained on prostate cancer, enlarged prostate, um, all kinds of male and female issues. And I wanted to be able to do all of that. I got great training at Baylor College of Medicine. And when I got into practice, my practice is immediately became female. As soon as women learned that there was a woman urologist, they wanted to come see me. And um, I kind of fought against it for a couple of years. And then I decided, you know, I, I really like this part of urology and I want to embrace it. And I just want to be really great at it. And I would kind of, you know, see, I would hear from my patients that, when they would go see the the urologist, sometimes their needs weren't addressed. They weren't given the time to discuss it. And sometimes they weren't even given a pelvic examination. And so I thought to myself, if if I had a practice that was just for women, where they know that we're focused on their issues, their concerns, and they feel comfortable, they feel that they can just be at ease and speak freely that I think that could be a big success. 
So I took the leap and went into private practice, which is not very common these days. Most doctors work for a hospital. And my attitude was always, well, if if it doesn't work out, then I can always find a job at a hospital. Um, but I wanted to I wanted to give it a go. I saw the need and um, it's been a been a big success for the past nine years. Now, this may sound like a, a stupid question, but I'm still curious as to the answer. Uh, why would it be that women would uh, gravitate so quickly towards a woman urologist as opposed to a male urologist? Um, I think a lot of women, uh, certainly not all women, but a lot of women just feel more comfortable talking about private issues. Urological issues, um, by nature, can be embarrassing. They're very intimate. Um, you know, leaky bladder doesn't sound like such a big deal, but when a woman has it, she feels less feminine, less sexy. She's um, ashamed sometimes, um, just very embarrassing. So they feel awkward or not at ease sometimes talking to a man. Um, most urologists are very easy to talk to. One thing I love about urology, my colleagues is urologists have a great sense of humor. You have to, to be in the field of genitalia. And um, and they know how to talk to women, but women just, they're worried that they're going to feel um, uncomfortable. So they feel more comfortable coming to talk to a woman. It's interesting that you say about the sense of humor. The doctor who did my last colonoscopy uh, is a well-known doctor here. And I live in Santa Cruz, California. And the thing he's probably most well-known for, other than being a, a great doctor who's been around for a very long time, very well-respected, uh, is his bedside manner. He's yeah. very funny. He's yeah. very disarming. Uh, he's a little silly, but uh -huh. somehow incredibly professional. And he's yeah. radically respected by other doctors. And so he's this magical blend of a great doctor who's been around for a long time with this uh, sort of very quirky... Uh, very different um, bedside manner and personality, and it really works for him. Yeah, yeah, the sound. Yeah, a lot of urologists are like that too <laughs> because it just helps put people at ease. Because it's you know you're going in and you're spreading your legs, or the men are bending over, and you're just showing your most private part of your body to someone that you just met two minutes ago. So um, it just helps if you can just kind of be down to earth and have a good sense of humor and, um, and be warm. So it helps patients to feel more at ease. Yes. I, I had the same family doctor for 25 years and I absolutely adore her. She's an angel on this earth and it broke my heart and my wife's heart when she retired. And I remember, uh, when I was a younger man and she was telling me it was about ready, she was about ready to start poking and prodding in places that she hadn't before. Um, she said to me, the good news is, I have small hands and I'm fast. Yeah, <laughs> I've used this. I've used the skinny finger uh, <laughs> line before too. When I used to see a lot of men. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that uh, you have said that I find fascinating um, is that orgasm is a right. And so um, I, I, I agree with you. I think that's a fantastic statement. But I'm curious why you say that. Well, I say that because um, that's part of how we're created. We're created um, to have pleasure. Um, and so to function, at, to fully function as a human being, um, as a woman or a man, um, that's part of uh, 
what we have a right to enjoy and to live out our purpose and to uh, fully experience life in our body. And why is it, Dr. Christie, that um, you are one of the few, best I can tell, that are out there talking about this, particularly in the context of women? Of course, we've had a focus on on men in this regard for a long time. Of course, um, Viagra and Cialis and the like have been on the market for how many decades now? Gosh, um, almost three decades now. And look, obviously, I'm a guy. But having consumed some of your work and trying to educate myself, it seems that women have somewhat similar challenges or can have somewhat similar challenges. Of course, they manifest differently and their bodies are different. But we hear a lot less about uh, women and their um, uh, sexual enjoyment and uh, and their sexual health than we seem to about uh, men. And so I'm curious um, what your thoughts are about that. Yeah, well, I think there's two, the top two things that come to mind um, are that women's orgasm is um, a little more complicated. It's a little bit harder to achieve. It's not something that happens easily for a lot of women. And there's a lot of misnomers about female orgasm and a lot of um, in the media that portrays it as happening easily during intercourse. And that's very unusual um, for women. Usually they need clitoral stimulation and it takes time and it takes um, a full integration of the body and the mind for it to happen. It takes a, a feeling of safety and wholeness. So it's, it's, it's more complicated for women. So that's why it's harder to address. Um, number two is we haven't really had very many good options to treat orgasm. So we have a hard time figuring out the problem. Then once we figure it out, then what are we going to do about it? You know, we don't really haven't had very many treatments. And then um, the third thing is that for men, orgasm is related to just being able to have sex at all. And being able to procreate, whereas women, orgasm is really just a bonus to procreation and to sex. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to happen, whereas for men, it has to happen. And uh, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm very curious to your answer. Does the average woman, based on the research, uh, can she have um, a pleasure without an orgasm? Can it be fulfilling Without an orgasm, or is there something missing when that doesn't happen? Or how 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 would you like uh, people to think about that? Yeah, I mean, I would frame it. Um, I think that it it can be very pleasurable, and it should be pleasurable to have sex and sexual intercourse. It should feel really good, even without an orgasm. If it doesn't feel good, then something's not right. And then the orgasm is a culmination of those feelings. The thing about women is that um, our main pleasure organ is the clitoris, not the vagina. A, lo a lot of women can have an orgasm just with vaginal stimulation, with intercourse, but most women can't. Most women need clitoral stimulation, whether that's happening somehow during intercourse or 
before or after they need that direct stimulation on the clitoris. That's where all the most of the nerve endings are that are going to stimulate that that feeling of intense pleasure. And so uh, it's it's a, a little bit of, of a challenge. It's a, it's a little bit of a it's a mystery to both women and men. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Yes, it is. And, yes, and and why is it? Because it. I don't know how the hell I'm going to have this conversation with you, Doctor. Jesus Christ. Uh, so once you can find one um, on your partner, if you are the partner of a person with a clitoris, yeah, you know where it is. And I would assume she will help you figure out um, what she would like you to do with this, um, this part of her body. And yeah. so... Why is it tough if we can know where it is or if we can't find it and our partner can help us find it? And if you assume that the woman has some knowledge about how she likes to feel, why isn't it easier for a woman to tell her partner, well, here's where it is. And if you do the following to it, uh, it'll really make me happy. I'm trying to say this as best I can. Uh, you're doing great. You're doing great. I know it's it's um, it's not something we talk about every day in polite conversation, um, but yeah, I mean, well, you you just identified the most important things, um, Christopher. You know, the most important things are the woman knowing her body and understanding her body. And so I advocate for women to explore their body and to, you know, self-pleasure themselves so that they can figure out, like, which part of their clitoris is more sensitive, you know, um, which side, you know, what kind of stimulation feels the best, um, direct, indirect, vibratory, um, soft, more firm, you know, what do they need? Um, and then, and then the communication part is the big part, you know, which is why it's so much better if it's in a, um, you know, a safe, committed, warm relationship where you have that, you can have that kind of dialogue with someone and you can, you can talk freely about that and, and feel at ease about that. I mean, I think there's a myth that there's some magic men that just know how to do, you know, like know what to do and how to do, you know, how to do it. Um, and so women are always like wondering if this is going to be the man that can figure it out and hack the code. Um, but really, even the best sexual partners need guidance and need to understand each other and understand each other's bodies. So um, I think the lack of communication sometimes is people just kind of wishing that things, they didn't have to really talk about it and that it would just happen, but it just really needs to be an open conversation and just explaining to that person, like, this is how my body works or guiding them or, you know, how, however that happens, verbally, nonverbal communication. And that seems like a very obvious answer. And it seems like if we take it out of the realm of sex, the obvious answer to virtually any other relationship question, whether it's a committed kind of partner relationship or um, whether it's you and I getting to know each other or work colleagues or whatever context, everybody's different. We can assume that everybody's going to uh, behave and react the same way to the same kinds of things, whether it's a discussion in the office or whether it's a discussion in the bedroom. 
And yet somehow it, it seems like um, this is a very hard topic for some people and their partner to talk about. And so my understanding of your work, and I'd lo- love for you maybe to share some here, is you, you do address the whole person. And so, so maybe uh, pop the hood on that for me a little bit, the, the communication yeah. and relationship side. Yeah. Um, you know, as a physician, I, I honestly don't spend a ton of time talking through that. I rely on my colleagues that are sex therapists that do that kind of relationship and sex therapy. But I'll start the conversation. You know, I'll start with, tell me about your relationship with your husband, your partner. Um, Is it a warm relationship? Do you feel like you can talk openly? Do you feel like um, you feel safe and comfortable and at ease? Um, And if there's any concern or if the communication isn't there or they just need some guidance, then I'm very quick to refer to sex and relationship therapists that can spend an hour to three hours sessions with them to talk through it and give them pointers. And, um, and I'll tell them, you know, you can go, you can go by yourself or you can take your, your husband, your partner, um, Either way, it's going to be beneficial because she's going to, she or he is going to help you to learn how to communicate and learn your body and, you know, practice mindfulness and all those sorts of things that can help with that um, connection between the two of you. Um, And sometimes only one session is needed. One session can be very helpful. Um, So I'm a big advocate for that. Yeah. Maybe if we be nice to each other, we'll, have more fun in the bedroom, right? Right. <laughs> Maybe yeah. if, if, if I'll speak on behalf of dudes, if you shut up and listen to her for a little bit. Maybe right. she'll maybe she'll want to play with you a little more often. Right. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So and then the other interesting thing about your work is I had no idea we were at a place in women's health where um you know, there were a set of, uh, of I don't know what you would call them, procedures, approaches, medical interventions, You'll maybe you tell me, that you can do on the physical side. So if, if the gal is working on the emotional uh, therapy, side, therapy side, if that's a, if that's an important thing for her to do, but there is a physical part of this where sometimes uh, for one reason or another, um, a part of a woman's body is not um, doing what we, maybe she would like it to do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to be skating no. around this shit for the whole our whole conversation. <laughs> anyway, I was watching some of your videos and 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 uh, extremely interested to find out that there are now medical interventions for women. Yes, I'm super excited about it. Um, yeah, starting a few years back, we started to actually have some treatments to help uh, women have orgasms easier, stronger, better. Um, so the first treatment that we really started having, um, was called, uh, it's called a PRP shot. So it's platelet rich plasma, which is, um, extracted from the patient's own blood. So we draw a few cc's of blood and then we centrifuge it down and draw out the yellow, um, plasma, which is platelet rich. It's sort of like if you skin your knee and you see that yellow goo on your knee when it's healing. That's the platelet-rich plasma. So um, 
we can inject that directly into the clitoris, which sounds extremely painful, but we've developed a technique where it's really not painful at all. So, so, um, so Dr. Hold on a sec here. So uh, we you extract some blood from the gal. Is it? And you get this gooey plasma mm-hmm. and you inject it into the most sensitive part of her body. And, yes. and you can do that without causing radical <laughs> upset and pain. Yes. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah, believe it or not. So, yeah. And I when used, did that uh, therapy start to become, um, you know, practiced broadly or more broadly? That started being practiced probably about eight years ago. So still very new. Eight, six years, six to eight years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very new. And then what that does is that plasma goes in there and it turns the cells in there, turns them on so that they start to lay down new nerves, new blood vessels and regenerates to stimulate the tissue. So it becomes more robust and more responsive. And so uh, I think I heard you say or read something you wrote that over time as women age, uh, blood flow to that area can decrease, which decreases um, the amount of stimulation or the amount of pleasure. Is that, am, I, am I understanding that correctly? Is that yes. what we're curing here? That's correct. That's correct. Wow. So if I was a gal who uh, had started to notice a, a degradation in my enjoyment, I could actually come to you or a doctor like you and, and, and have this procedure. Yes. Yep. And is it a one and done? Is it a... Am I on some kind of a maintenance program? Is there a subscription service I have to be part of? (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, we recommend um, just starting with one treatment and then give it a couple months, you know, for the tissues to regenerate and then see. So some women need two or three treatments, um, but many patients, just one treatment is sufficient um, to salt, you know, to improve their orgasm. And is that the primary medical intervention that we have today for gals who want to uh, want to improve their uh, their sexual experience. No, actually, um, we have a new technology that does um, a similar thing, um, but it's totally non-invasive, so no needle. So I actually do this procedure more now. It's called a Cleavana procedure, and um, it's a series of four treatments over two weeks. It only takes 10 minutes. And the way that that works is um, it uses low-intensity sound wave therapy to stimulate those cells and build up the blood vessels and build up the nerves. So what happens is she comes in, and then we don't even have to numb anything because it literally does not hurt at all. The first part of the treatment is a gentle suction cup on the clitoris, so it pulls the blood into the clitoris. The second part of the procedure is the sound waves, and we've been using sound wave therapy for decades. So it's we I use it in kidney stones as a urologist to break up kidney stones, a little more intense, you know, level of intensity. Um, and they use it in orthopedics on joints to stimulate the growth of the tendons and ligaments. So now we're applying it to the clitoris and actually to the penis for erectile dysfunction as well. So gentle sound waves. So it's just kind of like a tapping on the clitoris. And it's not just the 
like the button part of the clitoris. The, the clitoris is actually like a wishbone. So we treat the whole thing all the way down inside the labia. So we do that. And then the final part is called the soothing stage. So it's a little bit more of the sound waves and then some vibration therapy. And some women will actually have an orgasm during the treatment from the vibration because everything is really, um, you know, everything is really sensitized at that point. And then they can go home and usually have a pretty good orgasm after that as well. Wow. Um, this, so they this... do that. <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> I should probably shut up, but I'm having a flashback, <laughs> Dr. Christie. I don't know Uh-oh. if you remember, there's an old Woody Allen movie. Um, oh, shit. The name will come to me. It's, it's one of the earlier movies. And it's a movie about the future. I'm blanking on the name. And, and one of the things he posits in the future is going to be this, this thing that you stand in called an a, 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 a orgasmatron. And you're oh. going to walk into this thing and you're going to be in it. And then you're going to have an orgasm and then you're going to walk out. And so have, have you and your colleagues invented the female orgasmatron? It, yes, we have. <laughs> wow. Now, maybe people just want to come over that. for that. I got to check that out. <laughs> yeah. No, it's. That's hilarious. Um, yeah, no, it's it's a great treatment. It works really, really well. Um, patients are very satisfied with the treatment. Um, they notice a big result. Um, so they'll notice something right away. And then and then because it's regenerative, the body, it takes, you know, three, two to three months to really see the effects of it. And then um, and then we recommend doing a touch up either two or four more treatments annually to maintain the gains that you've been able to achieve. Wow. Now, you know, I'm not somebody who necessarily pays close attention to developments in uh, women's uh, sexual health. Uh, At the same time, you know, some of this stuff, particularly around men and Viagra and the like, are, 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 are pretty mainstream. And so my question is, it doesn't seem like we hear much about um, women's sexual health. And until your folks had reached out and I saw your bio and then I started to do some homework and I started to get educated about you and all the things that you do, I had no idea that any of this technology um, even existed. Why isn't this more prevalent or more talked about? Or is it and I'm just not paying attention because I'm not paying attention? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, we we're trying to get the word out. Um, We're trying to let people know about it um, because a lot of women struggle in this regard, you know, that they'll go through years in a marriage with very few orgasms, you know, Um, and they don't know who to talk to. They don't know what the solution's going to be. They don't realize it's so easy. You know, it's such an easy solution. Um, So I don't know why it's not more talked about. I really don't. Um, I think it, I think maybe, I don't know. I have no idea. Well, in that regard, I appreciate your uh, evangelism and advocacy um, because um, if you're somebody who loves their partner, you want them to have a great time and you want to have a great time. And if one Uh of us only has a great time, it's a lot less of a great time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you you tell me, doctor, but my, my personal experience would suggest that when uh, you do love the person 
and there's playfulness and fun and, and so forth and so on, and communication. And mm-hmm. both people have a lot of fun. It, it's a one plus one equals a thousand. And when one person has fun and the other person is, uh, um, you know, do, doing a, their to-do list in their mind, hoping it'll be over soon, um, while one person might achieve orgasm and the other person might not, even the person who achieves orgasm kind of goes, well, you know, that was great and everything, but I, I, I want us to love it. Right. Yeah. I mean, sex is such a wonderful gift. You know, it's just, it's the ultimate intimacy, you know, um, I often talk about the pyramid of intimacy, you know, where you, you have emotional intimacy, recreational, uh, intellectual, psychological, spiritual connection. And then at the very apex is sexual intimacy, because that's where everything should come together. It should be a spiritual experience. It should be an emotional connection. It should be fun. It should be physical, you know, exercise in a way. And everything should come together at that point is such a gift. And like you said, one plus one equals a thousand. And um, sadly, for so many women, it's just something on their to-do list. It's just something they, they got to do to keep their husband happy. And they, I don't know. I think a lot of women think it's supposed to be like that, that it's supposed to be that they don't want to have sex after a certain age. You know, some women never really get into it. And it's like I said, it's that we're created to enjoy it. We're created to experience that. And I feel like that's the fulfillment of being a human and being in a relationship there's nothing better. There's absolutely when you when you can achieve that true sexual intimacy and you're connecting on all those different levels, there's absolutely nothing better in the whole world. Thank you for that. <laughs> I've done a bunch of reading in this regard and um as a as a layman, I find the work of the Kinsey Institute fascinating and I know there's tremendous data that I'm not aware of. Do you have a sense, doctor, of uh, sort of uh, what percentage of women in, in our country or maybe even in the world uh, feel like they're having satisfying sex? I'm really bad with statistics, to be honest with you. But I think that only um, about 30 percent of women uh, orgasm vaginally. Whereas. And then about I think about 60 percent of the time women can orgasm in a sexual encounter. So 40% of the time they're not or they're not having an orgasm at all. Whereas the men, I believe about 95% of the time they're having an orgasm. It's a lot harder for us to fake it too. Yeah. Although it is possible. (laughs) (laughs) It is possible. So if I was a gal who, maybe was having some problems or challenges in this regard. What would you share with me, Dr. Christie, to kind of um, about how I might address this problem? Well, the first thing that I like to tell women is that you're not broken, that it's not, you're not alone. It's not you, that there is help, help for you to improve in this area. I want to address like we talked about the relational and psychological issues, 
definitely a physical examination to see, you know, if there's any um, issue with the anatomy, with the, especially after menopause or if someone's been on birth control for a long time, um, see the condition of the tissues, um, address any pain issues they may have. A lot of women have pain with sex. So addressing that, so that can get out of the way. Um, and then looking at their overall life, lifestyle, you know, encouraging them to exercise, eat well, eat antiox you know, antioxidant type foods, low inflammatory foods, um, to not drink too much alcohol, to take care of their body in general so that they keep the blood flowing, keep themselves, vi you know, vital and active. And just let them know that we can try these different treatments and, and that there is a very good chance that they're going to improve um, and that they're going to be able to enjoy that part of their body. I see women, um, I've seen a few women recently that have never had an orgasm hmm. that um, they don't know. Uh, even what know kind what of ages, like. if you don't mind me asking? Um, I've seen them anywhere from 25 to 58. Wow. And what is it that causes a 58-year-old person who's never had an orgasm to show up in your office and say, I think I'm ready to talk to you, doctor, about doing something about this? Yeah, I mean, I think that just suddenly realizing, like, maybe I'm missing out on something, you know? Maybe there's, um, maybe there's more to this than, than I thought all along. Yeah. Um, and maybe there's something that can be done for me. I mean, it seems like the things that I've read, the data that I've seen from Kinsey and many other places suggest that even couples into their very senior years who are in love, it's still a, an important component of their relationship. And I've also read some commentary. I don't know how much research there is about this that suggests that it's it's very hard to have a committed partner relationship with somebody where the sexual part of it isn't an important, vital part of it, that if that's not the case, that there's something missing in the relationship, the relationship is as strong as it could be. Do, do those things sound right to you? Oh, absolutely. Yes. You know, I see a lot of patients up into their 80s um, that are still have a very active sex life very warm, um, enjoyable, active sex life. And so that is totally achievable. I intend to have sex with my husband till I'm 100 years old. Uh, that's my goal. Um, Am I allowed so to it, say you go girl at that point yeah, <laughs> to that statement? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, it's totally achievable. And yeah, I think if they're not having sex regularly, that can that will definitely take its toll on the relationship. There's some people that can't have sex for various reasons, like medical reasons, right? So in those cases, they can figure out ways to maintain the intimacy. But if they're able to, then um, I think it's really important to focus on that part of their health and their well-being and their relationship so that um, they can continue to connect on that deep level. Thank you for that. Now, if I'm a person who's in a committed relationship, uh, a love, a loving relationship with a person who has a clitoris and 
there's some degradation in the experience or maybe they haven't had an orgasm or maybe they haven't had many. And I want to be somebody who's supportive and who helps her, I don't know, have a breakthrough is that what we call it in this mm-hmm. regard. Mm-hmm. How do I, so I guess two things, number one, and I don't know if this would be, I don't know. I'm not in a lesbian relationship, so I don't understand the dynamic there, but with a man, I can imagine a situation where the man would feel bad himself. Like I was deficient because oh, she's yeah. not uh, enjoying do. this experience and I am. Uh, and, you know, maybe something's wrong with me or maybe I think something's wrong with her. I can right imagine now. this could be a very challenging conversation for a couple to bring up. And if I was the man in a relationship with a gal who was experiencing this, I would want to bring it up in a way that was loving and caring and not accusatory or, or problematic in any way. And so what advice would you give to people who are in a relationship um, with a woman who's experiencing these kinds of challenges, who wants to have an open, loving conversation that might lead to whether it's coming to see a doctor like you or a therapist or both? Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, I think the, you know, I think the most important thing in communication in a relationship is, um, you know, using I statements. So to say to the woman in a warm, loving manner, I want to give you pleasure. I want you to experience incredible pleasure. And I want to do whatever I can do on my part to help you achieve that. Tell me what you need me to do. Tell me what feels good to you. Tell me what is going to help you. And I, and I want to, I want to make one thing that's real important for a woman to have an orgasm is she needs to feel safe. She needs to feel very safe so that she can just relax. Um, and she knows that no matter what happens, that she's safe. She needs to feel whole, um, which that has to come from within, really. But the man can help her by just affirming who she is as a person and that he loves her completely everything about her um and then to feel at home so that she feels comfortable at, like this is my this is my home this is where i feel like i can just be myself and i'm totally loved deep in my core so if he can help her achieve those three things feeling safe at home and whole that's going to go a long way and then just having that conversation just saying babe i love you and i want I want you to feel amazing and I want to know if there's something I can do to help you with that and then being open to whatever it is, you know, like some men aren't open to vibrators. They don't, they feel threatened by vibrators. Um, And a lot of women need a vibrator to have an orgasm. So just being open to those kind of things that she might need to really feel at ease and giving her the freedom to, explore her body, to understand her body, to learn how that she can achieve an orgasm and be supportive of that. Hmm. And so two interesting things you said earlier, you talked about uh, being an advocate for women's masturbation. Yes. Yes. 
And now you're saying you're, if I'm hearing you correctly, you tell me that you're What's advocating that? for, if, if she wants to, the use of toys. Yes, definitely. And so we live in a, you know, a very puritanical culture and some of these things are taboo or people feel like they're a creep or they're a weirdo or something like that. And what I hear you saying is, hey, it's your body. Go for it. Mm-hmm. And if you want to bring in some technology, have at it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I'm totally for that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just a way to um, be able to explore and achieve that pleasure. I don't think it's necessarily um, anti-puritanical, you know, um, at all. I think it. I think it's just um, an aid, a tool. I think of it as a tool, you know, just a, something to help um, stimulate the the feelings. Yeah. Now, th- this may feel like a bit of a non sequitur, but I- I'm I'm curious what your thoughts might be. Um, obviously, uh, Dr. Christie, there's a, a raging debate right now in our country about abortion and abortion drugs and abortion as a procedure and whether or not it should be legal and if it should be, should uh, at how many weeks and all, all of this stuff ever since the Dobbs ruling. Um, does what some people call uh, restrictions on women's choices, um, does that affect a woman's sexuality? That's a good question. Can you clarify what you mean by that? Well, uh, flesh that out a little bit more. Sure. Uh, one of my, uh, or let me say it this way. An obvious insight is um, because of the pill and other uh, contraceptives that women can control themselves. That mm-hmm. then provides a lot of freedom and safety around having sex if you don't want to be making people as you're having sex. And so um, those those things were very empowering for women and, uh, and I, you know, the condom for men and so forth. Um, and so if I'm in a situation where – and those things can backfire, right? There are women who are on contraceptives and using them appropriately. There are men who have condoms and using it appropriately. And for one reason or another, a pregnancy still occurs. And so if I'm a gal, uh, my assumption is if I'm a, a you know childbearing age that there's always a chance, even if I'm doing the right things to prevent a child – that I could get pregnant accidentally through maybe even no fault of my own. And if I live in a part of the country where I now have to go out of state um, to get treatment for that, does that put a damper on or a black cloud over or, or, or do women not view it that way? I'm very curious how, you know, what you might see here. Yeah. um, Well, this is just my opinion. Um, I, you know, I, haven't really, that hasn't come up with any of my patients, you know, so I'm just giving my opinion. Um, but I mean, it's sort of the same fear for men and women that aren't already in a committed relationship, right? Like of having an unwanted pregnancy, although it does fall more onto the woman, if that were to happen. Personally, I am a pro-life advocate, um, and I believe in life at conception. And 
I know that the research also shows that although women have been able to be more libertine in their sexual um, conduct and explore different things, that ultimately that women are most satisfied and men, by the way, are most satisfied when they're in a committed monogamous relationship when they, because that's when you're going to achieve that high level of intimacy that we talked about earlier. So I think it's sort of how that individual is framing their sexual relationship. If they are really wanting to explore everything and um, have lots of encounters where they're going to be at risk, then it's, it is going to put a damper on that, that woman's um, sexual uh, journey, it potentially, um, for her goals. But if her goal is to go into a committed relationship with one person and be have a very high level of intimacy, then it's less of a concern, these um, laws and restrictions. Does that make sense? Did I explain yeah, that I, well? I think so. The, the only thing in my head is there are um, married uh, women that I know that are in deep, long-term committed relationships with their partner um, who don't want to have children. Um, and w- if that were to happen to them, the fact that they were in a long-term loving relationship um, wouldn't help the fact that now they have to deal with what for them would be an unwanted pregnancy. Mm-hmm. And and I'm the strangest of people in this country, Dr. Christie. I, I'm a radical independent. And so basically everybody can't stand me. And I'm somebody uh, who is pro-life. I want there to be zero abortions. Well, good. I'm somebody who believes life happens at conception. And I know this statement gets me in trouble, but it's stupid to think life doesn't because unless something weird or bad happens, you're going to have a baby. So saying it happens at X weeks factually makes no sense to me. It happens at conception unless something happens to that, that, um, that new life. And, and this may be the part that, might be surprising to you. Uh, I'm very pro-choice. I don't think it's up to me to decide. And if medical professionals say that after some period of time, for whatever reasons, we shouldn't do an abortion, I'm not qualified to answer that question, of course. So I don't know whether it's two weeks, 10 weeks, 20 weeks, I have no clue. And Mm -hmm. I wouldn't even (laughs) have an opinion, but I think it's possible to be pro-life to believe life happens at conception and to still believe in a woman's right to choose at least up until some point. Um, but anyway, that's, that's where I stand on it. Now, while I still have you, uh, you also do some other interesting things outside of the pure kind of sexual realm. I mean, you're a urologist and, and so I, I've heard you talk about bladder issues that come with pregnancy and there's all sorts of things down there that um, we dudes don't really hear much about or, or know much about. Are there, are there other things uh, around sort of your <laughs> plumbing health, if I could call it that way, that, that you want the world to know about for women? Oh, goodness. I mean, that is a huge topic. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> so the most common things that I treat are um, bladder incontinence, you know, leaky bladders, overactive bladders, I do a lot of procedures for that. I have a lot of non-invasive things, office procedures and surgeries that I can do for that. And women do not need to live with bladder incontinence. It can be treated. 
we have a lot of great solutions. So I encourage them to see their doctor about that. And then I do a lot of bladder when the bladder drops after pregnancy. So women will notice a bulge in the vagina where things are starting to come out. And uh, so I do a lift and I go in with scopes and use robotic technology to help me sew more precisely and quickly to lift the bladder. Um, I just did one of those this morning. Um, Takes a couple hours. And then we do a lot with the changes of menopause or changes on the, the vaginal skin. So there's a whole host of diseases that involve the skin around the vulva, the, the vagina, where it becomes very dry, irritated, itchy, cracky, cracks, um, tears, very painful. So we have treatments for that. And then I go all the way to kidney stones which women actually have as many kidney stones as men. So it's interesting because all we ever hear about is dudes getting kidney stones. I know. <laughs> yeah. No, we have just as many kidney stones. So, and kid, passing a kidney stone is more painful than natural childbirth. That's how bad it is. So we try to Holy get on the floor. doctor. Pass. That sounds yeah. terrible. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, really bad. So we do uh, a lot with that. We do a lot with hormone balancing. The next thing I wanted to ask you about, you hear more and more today about um, both men and women having uh, supplemental estrogen or testosterone or some other things that I may not be aware yeah. of to kind of offset some of the changes as as we get older. Um, and my understanding is some of this is a little bit controversial. There seem to be some people who say, well, the body naturally does X, Y, and Z, so we should let the body do that. And then there's others who say, well, if we can supplement with some estrogen or in the case of a man, some testosterone or some other things maybe you'll tell me about that 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 help in whether it's virality or strength or aliveness or what, however you might describe some kind of vitality, that we have the technology and the knowledge today and we should do it. And so I'm curious what you think for the average person who's you know, approaching their 40s and 50s and, and, and hitting menopause and hitting middle age. What what are your thoughts on, on those types of therapies? I am a huge proponent for hormone replacement therapy. Huge. So um, in men, the testosterone starts to go down um, starting around 30 or 40 years old. So they start to go through andropause where their levels go down. So they start to lose muscle mass. They don't feel as strong as they used to be. They don't feel as um, virile. They can start to get depressed. They start to have erectile dysfunction issues. And we can put them back to testosterone level of when they were 19 or 20, and they felt amazing. And we have decades of research showing that it's safe. We use the same exact biochemical structure that is naturally in the body. So we're just supplementing it, putting it back to where it was. And it's shown so many benefits. Um, we we don't give men estrogen. We don't estrogen is sort of the trigger that helps to promote prostate cancer. So we actually try to block the conversion of testosterone to estrogen so that they're so it's just getting the good effect of the testosterone. And then in women, women actually have on a um, molecular concentration basis more testosterone than estrogen. Um, and so women also start to lose their testosterone around 40 and then their estrogen on average around 50. So 
If we can replace that, we can help women with their metabolism because that's when women start to lose weight. It gets super hard to lose that extra 10 pounds or however much. It goes on so fast, doesn't come off. So if we can replace the testosterone and estrogen, it helps them feel better, sleep better. They have a sense of well-being and their health is better, their bones and their heart and their metabolism improves as well, and their sexual function improves, their vaginal lubrication and their responsiveness. So I'm a huge advocate So, Dr. Christie, why aren't we all doing that? That sounds incredible. I know. <laughs> I was like, I know. Ah, pl- plug me into the thing, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's great. Even it's great. for people and- who are generally feeling like they're healthy and so forth, a little a little dabble, do you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it will. It'll, there's benefits. And um, unfortunately, it's not covered by insurance. Um, I mean, women's hormone replacement therapy often is with just estrogen um, and progesterone, but the testosterone is not covered. And in men, it's rarely covered. So that's one reason why we're not all on it is because it can get expensive. Um, but I I think it's amazing. I think it's a great, um, a great treatment for, for men and women. Fascinating. Now, doctor, um, clearly I could talk to you about this stuff for a long time. Um, you're an incredibly fascinating person. Uh, is there? But I know you got to go uh, save people and help people and, and so forth. Um, uh, is there anything else you'd like to touch on before we wrap, Dr. Christie? Well, this has been such a great conversation, Christopher. I really have enjoyed getting to to know you and getting to share what I'm passionate about. Um, I just, I love taking care of patients, um, taking care of women primarily, um, and just helping them get their life back and to live more fully into who they're created to be. So thank you for letting me have the opportunity to share this with you today. You're very, speak very about welcome. all this spicy stuff. <laughs> talk about sex. And uh, <laughs> well, talking about sex is fun. Well, sex yes. is fun, right? So, right. Yeah. and uh, of course, you're welcome back anytime. And um, I would just, maybe one thing I might leave you with is, you know, you're so, uh, you're such a good um, communicator and evangelist for this work, um, you might want to think about your own podcast. I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I just don't find the time to do it. Uh, well, once you get into a groove with it, you build it into your regular work routine. And so for me, uh, in the beginning, podcasting felt like work. And and now it it's still a little bit of work, but it's not like work work, if you know what I mean, right? Certainly this part of it is easy. The stuff yeah. in between well, is a little bit of work, but uh, and the other thing is, you know, well, ideally you'd have an episode that would drop every every week. You know, if you dropped one every other week or something like that, um, you know, you could still probably build an audience. You just seem like such a great voice for a conversation about women's health that at least as a man, I don't seem to hear that much about broadly. Well, thank you so much for that encouragement. I really appreciate it. Bless you, Dr. Christine. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, there she is, the legendary Dr. Christy Pramuji. And you can find her online at Christy, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-M-D.com. That's ChristyMD.com. All right. We would like to thank, we would like to thank you. Thank you so much. Very, thank you very much for investing part of your lives with uh, us around here. It means the world to all of us. Of course, thank you again to Dr. Christy Pramuji 
What an extraordinary person. I'm so glad we got to spend this time with her. Remember, the people at Doctors Without Borders are saving lives in some of the most horrible places, the most challenging places in the world where care is needed the most. So go to doctorswithoutborders.org today and see how you can make a difference too. My friends at Clary are going to help you learn to stop revenue leak. Revenue leak is the revenue that your company is earning, but for some reason, you're not being able to recognize it. With Clary, you'll learn to drive breakthroughs in the way you govern and collaborate on revenue across the entire enterprise. Go to Clary.com, that's C-L-A-R-I.com today and learn how to run revenue. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. It does contain content known to the state of California to cause radically non-obvious thinking, new categories, and exponential results. All oddcasts do contain nuts, and all rights do remain perturbed. Please consult your doctor, lawyer, accountant, shaman, mystic, therapist, uh, yoga instructor, and of course, category designer, before acting on any of today's information. Everything is the way that it is because somebody changed the way that it was. We are produced and edited by the greatest of all time, Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Jamie J and Sarah Knox do technical execution and they build Lockhead.com. Show notes by GM Simon, the Bobus Brothers, EX and RJ do our web development, and Cedric Barros does our graphic and web design. Our law firm is Weed and Jack, and our accountants are three balance sheets to the wind. We record on Squadcast.fm if you want to do legendary oddcasts on the internet. Check out squadcast.fm, and we record in Dolby ADHD. Katie Lang was right. Listen to the New York Dolls. Don't forget, the passing lane, the left lane in America, is the passing lane. Get out of it. Some of us are in a hurry. Teach kids science. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Grant Cardone. Sorry, Grant. We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Please. Stay safe, stay legendary, and until we hang out next, follow your different.